University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at UBCBR on Facebook for more information. All right, take a look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When we take a step back and think about it, we have been presented many different expressions of Jesus through literature and art and film and music. Even in the American culture, there are quite a few Jesuses represented. Take, for example, American film. With which Jesus do we pick? Jesus Christ Superstar, The Last Temptation of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter. Yes, that is a real thing. God spelled Jesus, Life of Brian Jesus, The Passion of Christ Jesus, Dogma Jesus, or the recent Ewan McGregor's The Last Days in the Desert Jesus. Ordained minister and writer Zach Hunt creates an American Jesus madness bracket every single year in which all the different expressions of Jesus in America compete against each other. Uh, My first image of Jesus was shaped by uh, the felt board. Does anybody remember the felt board? Okay, if you were not raised in church, uh, I, I am sorry that you missed out on this thing called a felt board. Picture a piece of cloth in the shape of a character stuck on a piece of felt board. It was the church projector before we had this thing called the church projector. The question I'm really trying to get at is, what is our image of Jesus? Where do we get that image of Jesus from? When you called me to be your senior pastor over a year ago, there was some major holdups about me. It had nothing to do with my experience or my age, my theological training or my height. Uh, There was this small and yet really big thing. I was raised an Alabama fan. You laugh, but I saw it in your eyes. I was different. I was an outsider. If you'll admit it, you might even say an enemy The irony of our fandom is that it all comes from where we are born, who we are told to pull for by parental figures or by friends, the opportunities we were given to watch said team. So if you were raised in the shadow of Brian Denning Stadium with a father who graduated from the University of Alabama, you would probably find yourself saying, roll tide versus go Tigers. And yes, I did spell in my notes, G-E-A-U-X, because now, finally in my life, I know how to spell go. It only took 11 months to catch on. And when it comes to our expanded beyond this view, just not just the teams, but also this thing we call the SEC, we have a particular lens we look at the world. Except when you ask uh, those who were pulling for the Virginia-Auburn game, that was a simple one. I would never pull for Auburn, even though I come from SEC country. And even the game showed its bias to the home conference. How many people came up to me on a Sunday morning saying, can you believe the double dribble they missed on that Virginia player? Even though when you take a look at the replay, the Auburn player is holding on to the Virginia player like they're going to prom together. You see, all these things have a certain lens, maybe a certain bias. Everything that we see and think and speak and do each day is seen through a particular perspective, a particular bias. These perspectives have shaped by the things that we've been taught, the things that we've been told to be true and untrue, our experience and the things that we have witnessed in other people's lives. 
So what about when it comes to Jesus? Every time you and I encounter Jesus of Nazareth, we bring our experience, our cultural, our philosophical, our political, our theological perspectives into how we interpret him. Every time we have a conviction is understood through our life experiences. The ways that we have learned to understand Jesus determines in advance what we see him doing and what he would have us do in this world. We are guilty, more often than we care to admit, of shaping Jesus to fit into what we want, into our desires, into how it affects our day-to-day living. And this happens on the far right and the middle and the left of all theological perspectives. The degree of religiosity, no matter if it's conservative or liberal, it's all too easy to shape Jesus ourselves. For all we see that we shape Jesus into our personal bents, we agree that we bring a certain bias when it comes to looking at him. Everything that we see and think and speak and do each day is seen through this particular bias. And so the question becomes, do we tend to shape Jesus or does Jesus shape us? When you really stop and think about it, that's a really difficult question to answer. Do we tend to shape Jesus or does Jesus shape us? How does it shape the way that we understand the words and actions of Jesus? How we are led into these things are all based on how we live and the way that we think. On January the 23rd, 1985, three little boys in Alabaster, Alabama were introduced to the Thundercats. This thing that's been on the screen, you're wondering what it is. As far as we were concerned, our Saturdays were booked for this cartoon. We did all things Thundercats. Adventures in the backyard turned into arguments over who could be Lion-O. Of course, I was never allowed to be Lion-O because I was the baby of the family and I always got third choice. We had Thundercats pajamas and t-shirts and bed sheets and lunch boxes and action figures. Let me just go ahead and tell you, the 1980s did lunch boxes right and we got it wrong after that. I still have all of our original Thundercats toys right next to our original Star Wars toys. The first toy that ever broke my heart was my lion Sword of Omen that I lost somewhere and never could find. I can still remember the hurt of that to this day. But then in 1989, TV executives tore the hearts out of the chest of three boys by canceling the show. As soon as it came into our lives, it was gone. Of course, this was before uh, the pre-DVD, DVR area or the series being, uh, being able to tape it on VHS. So there was no way to re-watch this beloved series that we had. Over the years, there's been rumors of cartoons being adapted into a movie, and the latest buzz came in the late 2018, but that was squashed. For four years of our lives, Thundercats was the source of so much joy and adventure and imagination And then it was gone. See, we all have a unique relationship with Jesus. For many of us raised in the church, he was this thing that we were taught when we were young and we can remember it. We were raised to know his stories and memorize his words. We were told that Jesus wanted us to ask him into our heart. And as we grew older, our relationship with Jesus took on a variety of paths. For some, our path, we stayed straight straight and forward for what we had been taught and what we had experienced. For some, we struggled with the complexities of Jesus and sunk into a relationship of vague familiarity. 
For others, we rammed headfirst into the inconsistencies and difficult questions between what we see in Jesus of the Gospels and what we see among American evangelicals. And of course, this often was met with concerns and judgment and a lack of help from other people. When questions are met with a resounding no, one's spiritual direction can lead to any number of paths, and for some path that led to a divorce of the church. And still for some, we never were even given the opportunity to to think deeply and to wrestle with the complexities of Jesus. And still for some, our journey with Jesus is that of a distant friendship that had time and space of relative unfamiliarity. See, the reality of all of these paths is that they're all okay. Because Jesus encountered the measure of each of these paths seen in a variety of individuals presented within the Gospels. And I think for far too many of us, our relationship with Jesus reflects my journey with the 1980s Saturday cartoon. It's something we knew was once so important to us. We still have the merchandise to prove it and somewhat show that we still care but it doesn't really inform who we are today and who we are becoming tomorrow. So maybe what I would like for us to do is take a step back from Jesus and rethink who we think Jesus really is. There's a curious text in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verse 13, in which Jesus has had a nasty encounter with some of the Sadducees and Pharisees, and this is what happens next. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. There are some loaded words of Scripture within here. For one, It is said that Elijah was a prophet who would return one day to usher in the kingdom of God. John the baptizer was just beheaded, so some people thought that Jesus was somehow the re-embodiment of John. And then there was this curious phrase from Simon Peter, Messiah, son of the living God. Messiah is a Hebrew word referring to one who is anointed or appointed by God. This is hinting towards kingship and God-ordained greatness. In chapter 16, Matthew is continuing to shape the narrative of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And just like his other gospel counterparts, Matthew has a unique perspective into who Jesus is, and he's trying to shed light into it. To date the compilation of the Gospels, Matthew falls second or third after the Gospel of Mark. In fact, Matthew and Luke both use sources of Mark to write their Gospels. Unlike Mark's gospel that tends to distance itself uh, a great deal away from the Jewish heritage of Christianity that it was sprung forth, Matthew almost goes to painstaking detail as to how much Jesus is connected to his Hebrew tradition. In other words, Matthew is a very, very Jewish gospel. And there's no more evident in the way that Jesus is presented as the new Moses. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus delivers five major speeches, which parallels the five first books of the Bible, what we know as the Pentateuch. First and foremost, Jesus preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, which we'll come to in a couple weeks as the ultimate example of this. 
And one of the more intriguing characteristics of this address is Jesus is uh, repetitive in him saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Matthew is giving a, a new interpretation of the law through Jesus. Matthew wants to make it clear that Jesus is even greater than Moses. His, his teachings and his commands surpass the greatest patriarchs of the Hebrew people. Jesus is the greatest rabbi. Ancient Israel had teachers called rabbis. Rabbis were teachers of the Talmud, what we would call the Old Testament. At a very young age, children would have been able to memorize scripture. And around the age of 10, boys would have begun their formal training in the law. At around the age 13, the, the most talented boys would begin their formal training in what's called Bet Midrash. In a sense, if you made the cut and were allowed to study under a formal teaching of the Talmud or of the Old Testament, under this education, a child would have been expected to memorize the entire Old Testament and be able to recite it. Could you imagine? (laughs) And after many years of studying under tradition, he would pursue this rabbi to be the best of the best. At a point... Approaching this young boy, a rabbi would have grilled this boy with all sorts of questions and scriptural recitations. And if the young boy met his standards, he would then invite the boy to come and to follow him. To become a disciple, a student, a follower of their rabbi. And a young man would follow and learn from his rabbi. A disciple doesn't just want to know a rabbi. The disciple wants to become just like the rabbi. And at the beginning of the first century, a man from Nazareth arrived in the scene in this region of Galilee. He was unknown to the people of the region, but he began to perform miracles like healing the sick and casting out demons and giving sight to the blind and restoring hearing to the deaf. And he began to teach from the Talmud, except he seemed to be extending the laws and the commands. The people started to see that this rabbi taught with an authority and conviction unlike anybody else they had ever seen or heard. This man taught as if he had the authority of heaven. And so people flocked to him. They wanted to be healed. They wanted to see him. They wanted to touch him. They wanted to hear what he had to say. And so after he arrived on the scene, Jesus began to call people to come and to follow him. But Jesus is inviting them to follow in the footsteps of Bet Midrash, the most educated of the Jews. Instead, Jesus calls fishermen, tax collectors, so-called sinners, outsiders, marginalized, revolutionists. Some of the disciples were teenagers and others were men well into their occupation. However, this strange collection of followers Jesus would call to be his disciples would change the course of human history. And like any good rabbi, Jesus had to teach his disciples what it means to follow in his ways. The Gospels present the teachings of Jesus in various ways on the pages, but ultimately what we see is that Jesus is inviting them into a new way of thinking and living. Just like Moses before him, Jesus was inviting these followers to change their lives, to reallocate the way that they look at the world, 
an invitation into new teachings, into a new mindset, into a new character, and it's such a radical way of living. One cannot simply pick up a practice and put it down, but one cannot simply allow themselves to be transformed by some of the teachings, but one must become something new. Jesus is inviting the disciples into becoming something new, into something whole, into something different. Jesus' invitation is simply complex. One can say that this invitation is to rethink your way of living and thinking. I've recently finished a book by Robert Curson entitled Shadow Divers, and it tells uh, the history of deep sea diving and what the people were willing to risk in order to go where no man had gone before. It specifically focuses in on the story of two wreck divers, John Chatterton and Richie Kohler, who tested themselves against treacherous currents, braving the depths of uh, induced hallucination effects of diving so deep, navigating through wreckages, um, perilous minefields, pushing themselves to the limit and beyond in order to fulfill what no one had ever done before. And in the fall of 1991, uh, not, not even these courageous divers were prepared for what was 230 feet below them a World War II German U-boat that no one knew was there, not even the U.S. Navy. And so they embarked on a six-year task of trying to identify this German U-boat. Many of their fellow divers lost their lives just trying to discover what was down there. As their men's marriages frayed under the pressure of this obsession, they grew more daring realizing that they were hunting more than just for what this U-boat's identity was. See, John Chatterton and Richie Kohler are pathfinders. A pathfinder is someone that ventures into the unknown to discover for others what is next. In Alexandra's Dumas, uh, The Three Musketeers, he writes, Never fear quarrels, but seek hazardous adventures. I've always loved a good adventure whether it be hiking or rock climbing or whitewater rafting or cliff diving or parenting or immersing myself into an unfamiliar culture of a third world, the other side of the world. However, for most of my adventures, including many of our own, we've walked where someone else has walked before. Someone else blazed that trail. Someone else jumped off that cliff into the water. Someone else raised two little girls. These are pathfinders. Maybe we want to not see him in these terms, but Jesus is a pathfinder. Jesus journeyed into the unknown of God, walking among humankind, venturing into a new way of thinking and living, but Jesus invites us into the path that he has already ventured down. He invites us into his way. Jesus calls people to follow him. The gospel word for this is disciple. It's the Greek word akulathu, which means to follow or to be the same as. So the call of the disciple is a call not to just follow someone, but to become just like that person. And to follow Jesus, it requires faith and obedience. And unfortunately, in this day and age of adapting Christianity to fit our brands and beliefs, our our economic and social and political views, too often we want to shape Jesus instead of stepping out of faith and letting Jesus shape us. Let's face it, we live 
in a highly individualized society that we expect to see things, say things, do things, and believe in things that fit into what works best for us. One of the many reasons we have so many different brands of Christianity in America, one of the reasons we have so many churches is we get mad at a bunch of people who are doing things and saying things that we don't agree with, so we leave and we go start another church or go start another denomination to find those people who think just like we think. And the challenge of each of us must consider is our conception of Jesus presented within the Gospels versus the conception of Jesus we have within our minds. That seems to be an audacious audacious thing for me to say. It seems to imply that we've gotten something wrong. And yet what happens in our life when the Jesus of the Gospels encounters our Americanized Christianity? What happens theologically within us when we see that the Jesus of the New Testament is standing next to people that we don't stand next to? The marginalized, the outcast, the so-called sinner, the unrighteous. What happens when Jesus that we have shaped in our image contradicts the Jesus that stood against self-righteous religiosity? What if the Jesus of the Bible would have nothing to do with the terminology that many of his disciples have become associated with, such as conservative or liberal or fundamental or progressive or Democrat or Republican or Baptist or Catholic or evangelical? What happens when we encounter the Jesus of the gospel that would not touch our political and economic and social stances with a 10-foot pole? But what if we choose a different path? What if we choose to follow the Jesus revealed in the gospels, not the Jesus we want to shape? What that will require of us is that we step out in faith to re-examine that Jesus. And we don't do this individually, we do this collectively as a faith community. Together we read the scriptures, together we wrestle with the Jesus presented within the words of scripture. Jesus' invitation is for all of us, myself included, to change our way of thinking and living. And this is not a solitary act done at the moment that we first choose to follow him. Instead, Jesus' invitation is the ongoing act of changing our way of thinking and living until we have arrived, arrived at the fullness of God in the life to come. Today, we are beginning a seven-month journey in the Gospel of Matthew. Each week, we are going to encounter the Jesus seen in the Gospels and examine who he is, what he is doing, and what he is inviting us into. My hope is that we will re-examine our faith in Jesus, the Pathfinder. Jesus is inviting you onto an adventure. Jesus is calling you. Jesus is calling me. Jesus is calling us. Will we follow?